Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hundred and eighty years ago, James O'Connell, a Dubliner, published his life story in Boston. We had been in the boat three days and four nights, but rejoiced as we were to make the land. At 28 years of age, he had already lived a life that even by today's standards, very few could imagine. Even in a latitude which must have been within 15 degrees of the equator, a night passed without sleep or food in an open boat washed by a continual breaking of the sea over it, chilled our frames. O'Connell's book details his extraordinary adventures, how he was shipwrecked on a remote Pacific island called Pompeii and was forcibly tattooed all over his body. That experience would allow him to commence a career of fame and fortune that would attract an audience of over 20 million Americans during the course of his short life. And all of this took place thousands of miles from where he was born. On the 10th of November, 1808, James O'Connell first saw light in the chambers over one Jones's book bindery, Thomas Street, Dublin, directly opposite a warehouse where brogues are or were sold by the hamper. Most of the 20 million Americans who came to see O'Connell did so at P.T. Barnum's American Museum on Broadway in New York City at 25 cents a head. O'Connell was a headline act at the museum. Barnum specialised in collecting human oddities of all shapes and sizes. So the variety that was offered to the people for their 25 cents... Gary Egan is a New York historian. ...included some exotic animal curiosities, namely Ned the Learned Seal. They had a loom run by a dog. Even Grizzly Adams trained bears. The numerous human oddities included giants, midgets. They had some wax figures, glass blowers, pretty baby contests. And of course, included in with those freaks and oddities was the tattooed Irishman, James F. O'Connell. James O'Connell shared the bill standing shoulder to shoulder with the bearded lady and conjoined Siamese twins. The real attraction for his audience was not just his tattoos, but how he got them. O'Connell is acknowledged as the first man to publicly display a tattooed body in North America. He was a pioneer who opened the door to body art. More than one third of the people under 40 years of age in Ireland wear at least one tattoo. And that fashion began with people like O'Connell. Dr. Lars Krutak is an anthropologist at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. I think it's a story that needs to be told. I mean, he's sort of this forgotten figure, um, especially as far as, you know, uh, tattooed sideshowmen in America. I mean, he is the first. It's an incredible story. There's, there's so many questions surrounding his 
you know, his lifetime, you know, but he, you know, popularized tattooing um, unlike anybody before him because he was the first in the United States. Yeah, it's an interesting tale to tell, that's for sure. O'Connell's story is largely unknown on this side of the Atlantic, and what is known is often disputed. In an effort to separate fact from fiction, 150 years on, I'm following his trail. According to O'Connell, that trail began on the 10th of November, 1808, when he was born into a family of circus folk in Thomas Street in Dublin's Liberties. His early childhood was transient. The first thing I remember of childhood is being an inmate of a school at Monaster Evan, about 40 miles from Dublin, whence myself and two sisters were one day forwarded to Dublin and shipped to Liverpool. I spent about a year with my parents and then went in company with an uncle who was also an equestrian to London. My uncle did not keep a very strict eye upon me and I spent my time in lounging about Deptford and Wapping. Here I formed an acquaintance with the sailors and, at length, Captain Salmon of the ship Phoenix took a fancy to me. Without the knowledge or consent of any of my friends, I shipped as cabin boy on board his vessel. O'Connell writes that that ship was bound for Botany Bay, transporting 200 female convicts to the colonies. However, with research, I see this as one of the first disputable claims of O'Connell. And we are only on page two of his book. The Phoenix was indeed a convict ship. And records show that each of its forward voyages to Australia, it carried male convicts only. And O'Connell gives us the wrong year for its departure. So my name is Juniper Ellis, and I'm professor of English at Loyola University in Maryland. He's aboard ship by age 11. So like at a very early age... He's earning his living, and he's away from the formal support structure of a family. And so I, you know, and you could see that as a performance, too. Like, he's having to to perform as an adult at a time when it would have been very painful and difficult to do so. O'Connell's autobiography carries a very elaborate title. A residence of 11 years in New Holland and the Caroline Islands, being the adventures of James F. O'Connell. In the early years of his time in Australia, O'Connell worked in the whaling trade. And it was in 1828 he claims his ship, the John Bull, was destroyed on a coral reef. When he took to the lifeboat, he had five other companions. In the boat with myself were five seamen. Besides myself, they consisted of George Keenan, an Irishman belonging to Dublin, John Johnson, an Englishman, Edward Bradford of Bristol... John Thompson of Liverpool and John Williams of London. As O'Connell's story develops, only one of his companions, George Keenan, will later feature within the pages of his book. The place where O'Connell and Keenan were washed up was the remote Pacific island of Pompeii, 13,000 kilometres from their home in Dublin and about halfway between Hawaii and the Philippine Islands. Pompeii Island is located at 7 degrees north longitude, 158 degrees east latitude. It is south-southeast of the island of Guam, which tends to be the the major island in the Micronesian chain. David Hanlon spent many years living on Pompeii. He is professor of history in Honolulu University, Hawaii. 
Well, there the historical record is a little unclear. O'Connell himself says that he was a sailor aboard the ship John Bull and that it shipwrecked uh, near Pompeii and he and several others managed to make their way to Pompeii. There are other historical accounts that suggest perhaps he was an escapee from a prison ship but the historical record is, is a little is a little blurry on that point. So we have O'Connell's words, which I think we should consider, though carefully. Careful consideration is what O'Connell's book has become known for. Initially published as a 220-page edition, a later 30-page pamphlet version was widely popular. Not since the publication of the first novel in the English language, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe, had a beachcomber story caught the reader's imagination. The critical difference, of course, is that where Defoe's novel was a work of fiction, O'Connell's story was written from real-life experience. O'Connell's is regarded by academics and anthropologists the world over as one of the finest of the beachcomber tales, with its themes of shipwreck, survival amongst remote communities, tattooing, and of course, eventual rescue. That he spent years on the remote Pacific island of Pompeii is indisputable, but there are other plausible explanations as to how he might have arrived on the island. Father Francis Hazel is a Jesuit priest who has served the community on Pompeii for decades. So then... What we think happened is James O'Connell and George Keenan, his companion, uh, came as uh, prisoners and uh, that they were probably brought to Australia, but that uh, the ships didn't have enough manpower to continue their voyage. Now, what the ships normally did was uh, they dropped off their prisoners if they were hauling prisoners, and then they continued on up around the Pacific, taking what they call the inner route or the outer route. That's around to China. Because if they were going to make that whole journey, they might as well bring something worth uh, the, the expense of the trip. As they did that, perhaps they had signed up James O'Connell and his friend Keenan because they were shorthanded. But usually the ship captains were more than happy to dump them on the island, the first island that that offered an opportunity to get rid of them, a lot of these guys were more trouble than they were a benefit. Almost 200 years on from its original publication, O'Connell's book is regarded as an accurate portrayal of native customs that would fast vanish as outside contact increased on Pompeii. The late Dr. Saul Reisenberg an expert on Pacific culture, spent much time on the island interrogating the Dubliners' story in the 1960s. There's a fellow by the name of Saul Riesenberg, and uh, he was an anthropologist. He did an editing of the book uh, that O'Connell wrote, and uh, he's uh, very careful in his criticism. He did it point by point. He is not able to say with any sort of conclusiveness, with any sort of certainty, that uh, he did come as a prisoner. But the odds are strongly in favor. Why? Because they were about the only people who were coming at that time. How O'Connell came to be on Pompeii is the single most disputable part of this quest. 
I'm hopeful that the modern age of mass information might uncover facts that 1960s research failed to find. From his dates, it is generally agreed that the year was 1829 when O'Connell and his companions made landfall on the island of Pompeii. Their rejoicing was short-lived. We had been in the boat three days and four nights, but rejoiced as we were to make the land, no immediate prospect of profiting by it appeared, for it was circled by a coral reef in which it was past noon before we discovered an opening. It's, uh, it's quite a sight to see the island from the water. It's a large volcanic island. History professor David Hanlon has arrived on Pompeii from the sea many times. Uh, it receives a great deal of rain, and after rain, the clouds sit low on the island, and that is quite a stunning sight. Uh, it's also quite a sight, uh, uh, an intimidating sight, to see large clouds of rain approaching you um, over the water as you travel. Affecting passage, we entered a smooth basin of water and saw hundreds of canoes launching and putting off to us. They would approach us within a short distance, then suddenly retreat, and at length commenced showering stones, arrows and other missiles upon us. We threw ourselves in the bottom of the boat, and when they had satisfied themselves that we could or would offer no resistance, they were emboldened to make a rush upon the boat, which they towed to the beach. After we were landed, they stripped us of our clothing and took everything out of the boat. The boat was then hauled up on the beach, and our company, six in number, were led to the canoe house. O'Connell and his fellow shipwreck survivors, they would most likely have been exhausted from their time on the ocean. Uh, they would not have had any idea uh, of the island that they were approaching. Uh, they would have had no understanding of the people who were there on the shore looking at them and waiting for them. The posturing, the noise would have perhaps been intimidating to them and it's likely that they were very much in fear of their lives at that moment when they were about to step foot on this high volcanic, lush tropical island. Taken from the beach, naked and exhausted, O'Connell and his companions were surrounded on all sides by tall, spear-carrying warriors, towering above the small Irishman, as they force-marched him to the communal canoe house. The building was filled in every chink by natives, seated, the men with crossed legs like Turks, and the women on their heels. A constant buzz of conversation ran through the assembly, each talking to his neighbour and gesticulating violently. Parties of two or three would come down to where we sat, walking with their bodies bent almost double. They took hold of our persons very familiarly, women and men, and gave frequent clucks of admiration at the blue veins which were marked through our skins, on parts of the body which had not been usually exposed to be bronzed by the sun. Huddled together in the thatched canoe house, cooking fires illuminated their pale skins and blue veins. When natives prodded their flesh, O'Connell and his comrades feared the worst. He would have approached the island perhaps thinking that there were cannibals. That was part of the lore that uh, was about and around and informing travellers who crossed the Pacific and who encountered strange islands. My companions feared the Indians were cannibals 
and that this examination was to discover whether we were in good roasting case. A horrible supposition, which was strengthened by the building of two or three wood fires covered with small stones. What O'Connell describes next, whether fact or fiction, was, according to his own words, about to save his life. In a sort of desperate feeling of recklessness, I determined to try the experiment of dancing upon our savage audience. I proposed it to my comrades, and they endeavoured to reason me out of what they esteemed criminal, thoughtless conduct in the view of a horrid death. The prospect was none of the most agreeable certainty. I accordingly sprung to my feet and took an attitude. A cluck of pleasure ran through the savages, and one of them, readily understanding my intention, spread a mat for me. I struck into Gary Owen and figured away in that famous jig to the best of my ability and agility. And my new acquaintances were amazingly delighted thereat. The natives were indeed delighted and charmed. A feast commenced, and in true island tradition, the celebration went on for days. We had been about three days at our new residence when some of the natives began showing us their tattooed arms and legs, making signs not entirely intelligible to us at first, though their meaning became afterwards too painfully marked. Unbeknownst to O'Connell and his companion, the tribal chief had ordered that the two men be tattooed in the island tradition. When he ordered O'Connell's markings, he effectively stamped him as being his own property. Dr Juniper Ellis, professor at Loyola University, is an expert on Pacific tattooing. In order to be considered fully human in Pohnpei, it was necessary to be tattooed. So in order to own land, in order to be considered fully adult, in order to marry, one had to have tattoos. It was, I was thinking about this a little. It's, it's a little bit the equivalent of, in the United States, we need a social security number in order to be able to earn money. Uh, in, the, in many places, you need a license in order to be able to drive a car. It was something equivalent to that. It gave him a social standing place. It registered him socially as a fully human being. So when he shows up in Pohnpei, he's performing the identity of this new arrival, someone who doesn't quite belong, someone who needs to be registered socially and so therefore needs to acquire the tattoos. On the fourth or fifth day, George Keenan and myself were put on board of a canoe with six natives. They paddled a short distance along the shore of the island and then turned into a creek wide at the mouth but soon narrowing till there was not room for two canoes abreast. It was completely arched over with dependent branches of trees, and altogether the scene was romantic and would have been pleasing if we were not so utterly in the dark as to the purpose of the journey. At length we reached a hut in which we were left by our conductors. After we had waited there some time, our suspense was relieved by the entrance of five or six women, bearing implements the use of which we were soon taught. George was made to set in one corner of the room and I in the other, half the women with me and the other half with my companion. One of my women produced a calabash of black liquid. Another took my left hand, squeezing it in hers so as to draw the flesh tight across the back. 
Then a little sliver of bamboo was dipped in the liquid and applied to my hand, upon which it left a straight black mark. The third beauty then produced a small flat piece of wood with thorns pierced through one end. This she dipped in the black liquid, then rested the points of the thorns on the mark on my hand, and with a sudden blow from a stick drove the thorns into my flesh. One needs must when the devil drives, so I summoned all my fortitude, set my teeth and bore it like a martyr. Between every blow my beauty dipped her thorns in the ink. Over the next eight days, O'Connell's tormentors applied tattoos all about his body. Back home in Dublin, he would never have seen such markings. It would take him a full month to recover from his ordeal. Lars Krutak is an anthropologist with the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., regarded as one of the world's leading centres for the study of people and their culture. Yeah, the whole process of being tattooed on Pompeii um, that O'Connell describes is pretty spot on. In this region of Oceania, women would have been doing the tattooing. Uh, It would have taken several women to do so. You need to have uh, stretchers, which he describes, so stretching the skin, making it tight to speed up the tattooing and make it more even. And then there was, of course, the tattoo master who used the hand-tapping tool that um, he describes as being comprised of a mallet and then tipped with thorns, I think actually lemon thorns. I myself have been tattooed with lemon thorn hand tapping tools, so it makes perfect sense um, when I'm reading his description of how the process goes. And he also talks about how the second layer of tattooing was much more painful than the first. And I, I completely agree with him because you're basically going back into those incisions and widening those those punctures, and it is a lot more painful to get through. It's a slow process, usually about 100 taps a minute. Um, It's very tiring for the tattoo practitioner, especially when you're covering a large portion of the body. And in O'Connell's case, you know, he describes his legs and thighs and arms and hand, one hand being tattooed, which rings true from the ethnographic records from this region of the world. And the time that he describes, you know, eight days were occupied in tattooing various parts of my uh, corporation, that also seems to be about right. There were brief intervals of rest in between to sort of help the body heal from this trauma. Um, He describes his skin being anointed with coconut oil um, during those times of rest to keep the swelling down. Um, And that makes perfect sense based on the... um, accounts of ethnographers who visited the island much later than O'Connell, who were interviewing the last generation of tattooed elders, and they do describe that. In conjunction with O'Connell, George Keenan, his shipwrecked companion, received tattoos, but according to the book, his courage failed him and the work was never completed. George provides the ideal foil to highlight O'Connell's bravery and reinforce him as hero of his own tale. One thing in O'Connell's favour, he was a small man with less skin than most to cover. Eight days were occupied in tattooing the various parts of my corporation. But fortunately, being a small man, the ground of operations was not so extensive as it would have been had I laid claim to more inches. The hair on my body was twitched out with seashells, as dexterously as pin feathers are subtracted from the flesh of a goose. It was a whole month before I recovered from the effects of this treatment, being anointed continually with oil and coal, 
which proved a sort of cosmetic, not very favourable to the delicacy of the skin. After his month's recuperation, when O'Connell returned to the community from the tattoo hut, a feast was held in his honour. The menu featured the island delicacy of roast dog. Just one month earlier, O'Connell pictured himself over one of those fires. But unaware of island custom and protocol, he misread the signs of the celebration. I came from the tattoo hospital, a horse of a different colour from that which I had when I entered it. Being tattooed on my left hand, on both arms, legs, thighs, back and abdomen. I had supposed that my tattooing was over, but now... By the chief's direction, one of his daughters prepared to mark me still more. She tattooed a ring under my right breast, another under my left shoulder, and two about my right arm. This was but the prick of a needle to the extensive printing business which had been prosecuted upon my body at the tattoo house, and I made no complaint. The feasting continued during the day. Many dogs barked their last, singing and dancing and feasting and the arrival of distinguished strangers lasted all the second day, and it was not until night that I began to suspect what it all tended to. At night, I learned that the young lady who imprinted the last marks upon my arm and breast was my wife, that last tattooing being part of the marriage ceremony. Within a month of his arrival as a shipwrecked sailor, James O'Connell is now married to the island chief's youngest daughter. He has been granted high status amongst his adopted community and he is yet only 21 years old. The boy from Dublin's inner city could never have dreamed of this time or place or fathering two children on a remote Pacific island. My wife was only about 14 years of age, affectionate, faithful and fond of baked dogs. During my residence on the island, she presented me with two little demi-savages, a girl and a boy, the latter of whom stands a chance in his turn to succeed his grandfather in the government of the island. In the following years, O'Connell participated fully in island life. He went to war defending his people against rival tribes. In his book, he recounts how he hunted, fished and canoed. He appeared to be a fully integrated member of the community, as Professor David Hanlon recalls. So O'Connell's allowing himself to be tattooed was in a sense a, a giving him himself to the island, to its chiefs. And that was a, a giving or a, a gift that won him a, a great deal of respect and also affection because it was something that most others could not or, or would not do. Uh, well, castration was another way in which Pohnpeian men proved their uh, manliness. Usually, the left or smaller testicle would be pounded with a rock and then removed. O'Connell perhaps may have been offered that option, uh, but it was an option that he apparently uh, declined. It's estimated that O'Connell spent between four and five years on Pompeii. And just like the testicle removal ceremony, as Lars Krutak knows, there were other established rituals that he failed to record in the book. There was a type of tattooing that O'Connell did not speak about, and this was typically the first tattoo that was 
marked on young boys as part of their rite of passage to leave behind childhood and to be incorporated into adult society. And that was the receipt of a penis tattoo, which was, you know, began on the right side and then the left side was completed um, shortly thereafter. But in essence, for the Pompeians, the body was wrapped and protected by these powerful designs that were derived from symbolic ancestral ties. Ultimately, tattooing was essentially a ritual of rebirth through a painful and bloody rite, whereby a new cultural being emerged, wrapped and protected by powerful ancestral designs that could literally be read as biographical text, if you knew how to read that language. O'Connell never tells us if he was subjected to the testicular or penis procedure. However, when the first opportunity arrived to depart the island, he jumped at the chance. He left Pompeii with nothing more than the designs on his body, marks he would never be able to read, but that would make him a marketable curiosity for the remainder of his life. It was in the early part of the month of November 1833 that I discovered a vessel, the first vessel that I'm positive of seeing while on the island. It was about sunrise in the morning when I first discovered her. A couple of miles from shore, the trading vessel Spy of Salem stands out against the horizon. O'Connell asks permission from his chief and his wife to go to the ship. Permission is refused. He asks again and is still refused. So he steals a canoe and with his companion George Keenan beside him, heads out to sea, leaving his chief his wife, his children, and the island behind him. Blunt, plain man that I am, I could hardly disguise my joy at the hope of an escape. Although at times, as I looked at my wife and her children, I could hardly conceal my grief at parting. To have betrayed either joy or grief would have revealed my purpose of escape, so I was compelled to hide both. After his years on the island, Rough seas would not stand in the way of O'Connell's decision. At length, the tide served us to launch a canoe. There was a tremendous sea on, and it was careless on my part to let the paddle go out of my hand. We were swamped. As is usual with the natives, we all jumped overboard. We passed under her stern and read the words, Spy of Salem. Passing round to her weather bow, I sung out, Shipmates, throw us a rope's end, will you? There was a bustle on deck, a buzz of surprise, but no answer. And in a moment I heard somebody exclaiming, Captain, the natives on this island speak English. He was given permission to board the ship. For the next two years, O'Connell travelled en route to America. He survived a ship's mutiny a Manila jail and a cholera outbreak before arriving in New York City in 1835. As Juniper Ellis recalls, a billboard from the time shows that he drifted into the family business as a performer in the Lion Circus. And then as soon as he got to New York, which is where he began displaying his tattoos professionally, the tattoos functioned very differently, so people weren't accustomed to the patterns at all. And it's reported that women and children would flee screaming from O'Connell through the streets of New York because ministers had promised from the pulpit 
that if any woman who was bearing an unborn child looked at his tattoos, the designs would transfer themselves onto the unborn child. So there was fascination and also, I guess it can be described as a little bit of concern or alarm about these patterns that were unfamiliar to viewers in the United States. So on the one hand, in the Pacific, the patterns made him fully human. But on the other hand, in the United States, the patterns placed him outside the bounds of the human, it must be said, in some ways, even though audiences were fascinated and flocked to his performances. O'Connell is at home in New York City. He has now found fame, the first man to publicly display tattoos in North America. His audience want to hear more, and he publishes his book in 1836 so that they can learn of his exotic adventures and tale of survival amongst savages. In the final pages of his book, the now 28-year-old O'Connell tells how he is at ease amongst his new circus fraternity. I have nothing further to say, only at present I am with a circus company. And from what I've seen in my wanderings over this wide world, I think this company renders the greatest attraction and variety in the United States. The performers being of the highest order, gentlemanly in their department and praiseworthy in their performance. Whereas his book ends with these words, O'Connell had a performance career that would last a further 18 years. He toured the circus and freak show circuit up and down the United States of America. His attraction was his appearance, his story, and a performance of the Irish jig Gary Owen that he claimed to have saved his life. But as the years passed, his tattoos were becoming a problem. The ink was fading. Here's Lars Krutak. Yes, I believe that O'Connell definitely received tattooing after his experiences on Pompeii because, as he states, he was tattooed on his back, his abdomen, also on his torso, and traditionally men would not have been marked in these places on Pompeii. On the island of Pompeii, beautiful women marked O'Connell's arms, legs and lower body. But years later, he displays himself tattooed about the face, back and chest. By this time, his appearance has been described as repulsive and grotesque. Whilst O'Connell refers to the islanders on Pompeii as savages, here in North America, he is the savage. The only place where he fits in is the circus ring and in the company of fellow freaks. So maybe he sort of had to invent this new life, not only in pursuit of capitalism and making money perhaps, but sort of to make amends for for allowing himself to be tattooed and for giving up, you know, his, his civilized values. O'Connell has traveled a long distance around the world. His life has been transitory, from Dublin's inner city to Liverpool and London, from Australia to the Pacific, from Pompeii Island to New York City. He has a wife and children on the far side of the globe. And for most of this information, we only have his own words to go by. The element of O'Connell's life that I find most remarkable is his ability to market his misfortune into his own advantage. He couldn't have made a living for two decades if he weren't a draw to audiences. So I think it's pretty clear that he had appeal and 
and people were intrigued by these new designs. And remember at the time, these designs would have been unfathomable. People wouldn't have understood why it would have been important to those in the Pacific to practice this particular art form. And so if you think of all the fascination of the new, but also sometimes the new inspires fear in people's hearts as well. And it seems true that audiences in the United States responded in both ways to his tattoo designs. In 1854, O'Connell was traveling with Dan Rice's circus. Rice was a versatile showman who set up performances along the eastern seaboard of America. In his autobiography, he recalls, In 1854, we traveled by my steamship on the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. We got up the electric light to illuminate the tent, but a performer took sick and died from the effects of the chemicals we used to create the light. Many of the troop took sick, and one member, James O'Connell, who had weak lungs, died a short time after. James F. O'Connell, the tattooed Irishman, passed away on the 29th of January, 1854. He was 46 years of age, and even in death he was a showman. Murray Ward Brown, a relative of Dan Rice, wrote, While travelling with the show, James O'Connell was taken ill and unable to perform, but he was kindly looked after by Dan. Finding the closing hour approaching, James made a characteristic request that was finally carried out. When committed to the earth, the band played a lively tune, Gary Owen and Jean Lafitte Johnson danced a jig over the grave. Poor O'Connell thought that the transition from a life of privation and suffering was more appropriately celebrated by music and mirth than grief and lamentation. Opportunistically, O'Connell swapped a life of early privation for one of later success. For over a century, O'Connell's book remained unchallenged. But in the 1960s, researchers began to interrogate its contents. Although they suspected its veracity, they failed to uncover official records to support their suspicions. In his book, O'Connell possessed a great ability to muddy the waters by juggling dates, people and places to suit his story. We now suspect that he had a personal reason for covering his tracks. When researching the O'Connell story, I came upon the manifest for the convict ship Ferguson on an Australian website tracking convicts arriving from Ireland. On the 16th of November 1828, the convict ship Ferguson departed from Kingstown Harbour, now Dunleary Port, in Dublin. On board were 216 male prisoners bound for Australia. They docked at Norfolk Island in the Pacific. Amongst the records of those on board, I found the following. Details, James O'Connell. Religion, Catholic. Age and arrival, 21. Marital status, single. Trade, labourer. Born, 1808. Native place, Dublin. Tried, 1828, Dublin. Sentence, life. Former convictions, two. Crime, robbery of house. Remarks, Norfolk Island. That Norfolk Island is a place O'Connell writes about in his book. 
he covers day-to-day life there. Of course, he tells his readers that his observations are from a sailor's, but not a prisoner's, perspective. All the facts on the manifest for the convict James O'Connell match our subject. His age, place and date of birth, and the time of his arrival in the remote Pacific. To my mind, this is without doubt James F. O'Connell, the tattooed Irishman. The truth of how O'Connell landed on Pompeii is in many ways immaterial. He would have known that the public appetite would have been better served by a beachcomber rather than a convict's tale. And he was correct. With an audience of over 20 million in his lifetime, he was the first man to bring the art of tattooing into the public arena. The final paragraph of James F. O'Connell, the tattooed Irishman's book, is in many ways prophetic. Every man is possessed of the importance of the events which have ruled his fortune, and in love with his own history. Mine has been checkered enough, and the interest with which portions of it were listened to and the advice of personal friends has induced me to lay it before the reader. He will be his own judge, whether it is worth that pains or not. But if he have followed it to this concluding paragraph, that attention is presumptive evidence, at least, in my favour. Close my eyes again.